Thank you for taking time to listen to this Redemption Church sermon. Redemption Church exists to make authentic disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of our world. We want to help everyday people wake up to a deep, meaningful life in Christ. We pray this sermon will help. For more information about Redemption Church and for additional resources, please visit redemptionokc.com. You guys grab a seat. And you can pull out your Bibles. We're going to be in Philippians 1. Thank you, Coons, for reading for us. We are going to be talking today about friendship. But before we do that, we're going to talk about loneliness. A recent study showed, we read a deal on NPR, and they were talking about studies that have happened on loneliness. And one of the things that they says more than three in five Americans are lonely. More and more people are reporting feeling that they get left out, they're poorly understood, they're lacking companionship. Now, guys, I know you th- we sometimes act bulletproof. Do you know studies actually show that you are lonelier than the women in the world? And so this is actually a bigger problem for men uh, than it is for women. And it goes across, uh, really across generations, although Gen Z, those who are 18 to 22 when this survey took place, uh, were actually more lonely than anyone else. At a time when you have more freedom and more ability to connect, you actually are lonelier. It's also interesting that heavy social media users are actually more lonely than those who don't use social media. Uh, it goes up to about um, almost three, three out of four instead of three out of five um, for those who are heavy social media users. Obviously, loneliness is also strongly linked to mental health issues such as anxiety and depression, but it's also been found to impact physical health. So does that just encourage your heart this morning? Just to know that we're a lonely world that's in a bit of a mess and we got all kinds of issues. Here's a question I have for you. What if, what if Jesus gave us the church as a solution to the loneliness problem? What if God created something that was meant to be uh, a help to this even before there was a problem? Do you know if you go to the very beginning of the Bible and you look at the first two chapters of your Bible in Genesis 1 and 2. It talks about the creation of humanity and God spoke and created the world and he created men and women. And it says over and over that his creation was good, it was good, it was good. He gets to humanity and he says it was what? Very good. And then at the end of chapter 2, he immediately says, but it is not good for man to be alone. We were created for community. We were created for relationship, for friendship, for connecting with other human beings. That that was the way God designed us and hardwired us to flourish is through connection with other people. And so we're going to look at this today. And really, this is foundational for human existence. It's why we need healthy families and healthy communities. It's why the first thing you do when you believe the gospel is you get baptized into a new family called the church. And this thing that we do every week is not just attending an event, it's meant to be deep, meaningful relationships. It turns out God sort of knew what this loneliness thing would be a problem. And so he built everything to push us into community to address that long before we ever realized there was a study that could prove that what God said was true. 
because God intends for us to be in community. So as you look at Philippians, we're going to just take a few verses here. And it's interesting, if you look at the first 11 verses of Philippians, I want to point out just really quickly three really obvious things that show up there. First is it's incredibly personal. He talks about my remembrance of you, this prayer of mine and my prayer. And, and so there's this very kind of personal engagement that Paul has and says, my heart is connected to you, he's going to say later. So it's, it's very personal. And there's lots of relational language and there's lots of emotion. It's amazing if you, do, if you go through and underline all the emotion words that show up in this passage, how strong it is. So first, it's very personal. Second, there's abundance of words like all, always, every, all of you. We're reading this, my wife said in counseling, they said, don't use any of those. And Paul just strings them all together. I mean, look at the way he says this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you all, always, in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. So there's this kind of exuberant language that's there. You may remember even in the, the first verses when Paul addresses the letter, he says, to all the saints in Philippi. Saying that every single one of you matters. Everyone is, is, is essential to the church. He's also kind of tipping his hand to something he's going to deal with a little later in the, church, in the book when he's going to talk about unity. And the fact is unity only happens when we are all together and stand with one mind and one heart. And so this really personal letter also deals with all, every one of you. But the third thing is, is kind of a stranger one, that all these people bring Paul joy. Does that just seem weird to you? Like to be with a whole bunch of people and think they all bring you joy? I mean, we tend to look at people and we go, like, there's a joke in them pastors that, go, that says, it goes something like this, ministry would be fun if it weren't for all the people, right? Like this thing would be really eaten now, it would also be meaningless. But sometimes people are hard and yet Paul says these people bring him joy. And, and so it's an interesting thing for us to look at. I want us to look at why Paul sees it as joy. Uh, there's, uh, you know, you, you, you read this and so much in our world, you, you talk about church hurt. You know, there's the old pastor's joke that talks about the man who was stranded on an island. Have you heard this one? guy who was stranded on an island for years by himself and eventually they find him and they send a search party out to rescue this guy and as they get there they notice that he's built, he's constructed three different buildings and so living here on this island for himself for all these years he had time to build three different buildings they said, well tell us about the little city you've built here, what are these buildings? And he says, oh well this one's my home, this is where I live and he points to the next building and says, and that one over that one, that one there's my church, that's where I go to church and they said, well what about the third building? And he says, well, that's the church I used to attend. I don't go there anymore. <laughs> right? Like, you know, th there's a reality that, that sometimes churches get messy and sometimes they go as well as you want it to. And yet Paul gives us a very different image of church, doesn't he? He doesn't give us an image of church that is hurtful. He gives us an image of church that's helpful. But you also notice what Paul's doing here is he's praying right? If you're going to find joy in relationships, that's probably a good place to go. Like, I better pray about this. And that's what Paul does. In verse four, he says, always in every prayer of mine, making prayer with joy. So he prays regularly, but he also prays regularly with thankfulness. He practices gratitude. He's got a thankful heart. And so he makes his prayer with joy. 
Now, one of the things that's going on kind of under the surface here is that Paul is actually writing this letter, we'll find out later, from prison. And so he's likely prisoned in Rome, and he's writing back to the church at Philippi, telling them about this, and he wants them to know, hey, I know I'm in prison and you're worried about me, but I'm okay. I'm able to pray for you, and I'm able to write this letter with joy, because his joy isn't dependent upon his circumstances. He's got a joy that's bigger than that. And this isn't the first time we've seen this. Remember last week what we, we looked at, we kind of set this story up and we went back and looked at Acts 16 because that's really where you see the founding of the church at Philippi. Where was Paul then? He also found himself in jail, right? So you may remember in, in, in uh, Acts 16, he goes and he... Uh, he sees Lydia come to faith and this group of women that begin to trust the Lord. And then he delivers this little slave girl and frees her from oppression in multiple ways. But then he goes and he gets thrown in jail because when he frees this little girl, he actually encroaches upon their ability to make a profit off this girl. And so they throw him in jail. And there in jail, it says Paul and Silas are doing what? They're praying and they're singing. And they're rejoicing. And eventually an earthquake comes, Paul's freed. Uh, but in the midst of that, and this, his joy witness, is a witness to this jailer, and this jailer comes to faith in Christ. And so you see this over and over in Paul's life. Sometimes our joy is our greatest witness. Do you realize joy is at the very heart of the Christian faith? Uh, joy happens when the presence of God happens. When we're connected to the presence of God or in his presence, joy is the natural overflow. It's why when you get to the fruit of the spirit, it says that when the spirit is present in us, it bears fruit in us. And one of those fruit is joy. That there always ought to be joy. And so joy prevails for Paul because God's presence can't be stopped no matter what the circumstances are. And so if we're going to be joyful, we better pray like Paul. And so he prays regularly and prays Thanksgiving. And so before he talks to them about God, he talks to God about them. So the verses three and four, what you see is Paul just says, I want to tell you just the facts. I have a thankful, joyful heart about you. Then in verse five, it's going to say because, and it's going to shift. And he's going to say, I showed you, I gave you the fact of my uh, my joyful heart. Now I want to tell you the reasons for my joyful heart. So he's going to begin to explain kind of why we can live and find this kind of joy in other people. And I want to highlight to you two phrases as you walk through the rest of the, this passage. There's two phrases that are, that are really mere phrases, but they're essential. and They're really important for us to understand. And the first one is partnership in the gospel. And the second is partakers with his grace. Partnership with the gospel and partake, partaking with me in grace. And so this idea of gospel and grace, that those ideas are, are linked. They go together. And so the gospel is, has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. And so it's the good news of Christ. It's the kingdom of Christ. It's the presence of Christ, the love of Christ, the life of Christ, the mission of Christ. That's when it says gospel. That's what it's talking about. And anytime you have the gospel, you also have what? Grace, those two things go together. And so what Paul says, the reasons why I'm so thankful and the reasons why I have joy when I look at you is because we share together in the gospel and we share together in God's grace. These are the things that bring us together. And you notice when in verse five, he says uh, that, that I make my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, last week we looked at the first day of the church of Philippi. And what he's saying is, the first day I met you, at the very, very beginning. Do you remember uh, what we saw last week? What happened on the first day that Paul met 
the believer, these people in Philippi. Uh, th there was not enough people there to start a church. And so ladies would go out to the river and they would pray on the Sabbath. And so Paul went out and found them. And it says that he began to explain to them that the Messiah that the Old Testament talked about is, has come. His name is Jesus. He, he lived and he died and he's been risen. And so he shared the good news. And it says that the Lord opened Lydia's heart that she might hear the words that Paul preached. So she understood the gospel. And immediately what she do? She was baptized and then she said, Paul, I want to be a part of this mission. Will you come, um, come and stay at my house, you and all your friends? And, let's, and that house became home base for their mission. It became where they met as a church, that house church. Then he goes and he sees this jailer who um, witnesses Paul's joy in prison and says, what must I do to be saved? That he hears the gospel and he's baptized. And immediately it says he began to take care of Paul's wounds and he had him over to his house and he fed him he became part of the mission as well. Do you see those two things in Acts 16? Salvation, that's represented by baptism, and then they jumped into the mission. So they experienced God's grace, and then they engaged in God's mission, and those two things happened together, and that's what Paul is talking about. So he says that, that when I, I'm thankful and I'm joyful because you, you have your partnership in the gospel from the first day, he's saying from the first day when Lydia and the jailer first came to faith, and this church in Philippi began in this house. That was the first day until now. You notice until now means times past. And so they've, uh, what, there, there's been other things that have happened. What Paul says is from the very beginning, you guys were engaged in the mission and you were experiencing God's grace. And that hasn't changed all the way till now. We know some times past because you get up in verses one and two and it says the church at Philippi with the elders and deacons. So now they have elders and deacons. We know from other books of the Bible that this church was an incredibly generous church, even though they were sometimes poor, that they had shipped money back to Jerusalem to care uh, for people that were surviving in a famine and, and, and suffering. Uh, they had shipped money to Paul to take care of him in prison. That actually is the, the reason why this letter came was Paul received a gift from them and he sends a letter back. So he says, from the very beginning, my, my encouragement or my connection with you all had to do with the, experiencing the grace of God together and engaging in the mission of God together. Those two things describe everything that Paul has experienced from them. That's why he's joyful. And friends, let me ask you a question. When you think about church, is that your experience in church? Because a lot of times when I look at our world, we think of church as, as an event that we attend and make a social connection with a broad group of people for an hour a week, and then we go back about over the rest of our lives. When you think of church as an event you attend, and it's, it's more of a social connection and something that I go in order to get fed, in order to get encouraged, in order to just lift my head a little bit and get me through the rest of the week, but then I walk out the doors and I don't think about those people again until the next Sunday, you're not going to experience the kind of deep relationships that Paul did. You're going to think about it differently. And so what we see and what Paul's trying to get us to understand, I think, is spiritual friendship is found in the common experience of grace and the common cause of the gospel. That when we experience grace together and when we engage in gospel mission together, God puts our hearts together in a unique way and brings about relationships and friendships that's different. And so he's saying to the ch this church, your constant commitment to the gospel has created grace in my life and brought goodness um, in, to the gospel. And we've advanced the mission. And so they've helped to spread the gospel. And what he's really talking about is you all believed the gospel and lived it. 
It, it engaged and became part of all of your life. And so those two words, gospel and grace, go together in those two phrases. But you know, there's another word in that phrase, and uh, you, see, you see that partakers or partnership. Uh, and so when you think of partakers and partnership, both those come from the same root word. It's koinonia in Greek. And uh, oftentimes don't mention that, but that's one that gets thrown around religious circles a lot. And a lot of times we translate it as, as fellowship or as communion. Uh, it, it speaks of a connection, but it goes beyond merely kind of a, a social connection. It actually goes to this more of a partnership investment connection that happens through a mutually beneficial relationship. And so this word, when you look at partnership, and when you look at partakers with me, it's, it's the same root word that takes place there. It shows up all throughout this book, and it's a really important word, not just in this passage, but throughout all of Philippians. And what Paul is doing is he's focusing here on what is the shared experience of life in the church supposed to be like? It's not meant to be an event that we go and attend once a week. It's meant to be this relational connection, partnership, partaking and sharing with one another in the life of Christ as a part of his body, as a part of his family. The thing that brings real friendship is shared experiences of grace and shared experiences of ministry. Those are the things that ought to bring us together. Um, friends, the meaningful and sometimes messy involvement in the actual lives of people in the church is what makes it significant. And oftentimes when I meet with a group of guys and when they get a group of, uh, of men together, the thing that bubbles up in a healthy group of men is you realize that uh, we've become friends because we share in some of the same stuff. Oh, you struggle too. I struggle. Oh, you, you don't always want to do the right thing. I don't either. Oh, sometimes you trip and stumble and fall. Well, I do too. So I'm not alone in this. And it's amazing how much that, 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 that breaks through the veneer of, of kind of pretending we have it all together. And it's that thing that actually knits your heart to another guy. And you go, man, we've got something in common. We experience God's grace together. And we become kind of grace in the flesh, offering encouragement to one another in the midst of our brokenness. You know what doesn't bring our hearts together? is when we walk in for an hour and pretend we have it all together and everyone dresses up and looks good and we come in and do a few things and we go home. Because there's nothing in that moment that knits my heart to yours and say, I mean, we have a common experience of God's grace. We both need God's grace and Jesus is big enough that we can experience it. And when we remind ourselves of that, I mean, it endears me to you and you to me, right? That's the way it works. Whether, uh, whatever your experience is, that's, the way, it, that, that's the, the way God intended this thing to work. I want to read you a letter, and I didn't really intend to do this when I was first mapping this out, and I felt like this morning as I was coming in, I felt like God just reminded me, he's like, you've got an example of this that was amazing in the life of our church. And Paul was writing from prison, and I actually want to read a segment of a letter that I received from someone from our church who's actually in prison. Uh, several years ago, we had someone who came to our church and he had gotten in some trouble and um, was out on bond and he came and just said, I really just want to get connected to God's people. And he actually had, had, had felt like he'd met the Lord in, in jail. He'd had a Bible when he was in jail. And so he, he felt like he had been saved in that time. And he came to our church and said, I, I, just, I just want to be a part of the church as long as I can until I have to go off to prison. 
And he knew what he had done and he was gonna have to go pay for that, but he was awaiting trial. And so during that time, and he jumped in here and he served and he was one of us and he was a part of our family and got to know him and his, his kids and, and just enjoy being together. He's now been in prison about five years, but I, one of the days in the life of church I will never forget is the day that he had to go for sentencing and he had pled guilty and worked out an arrangement in that. And on that day when we went, we sat and watched and if you've ever been in one of those courtrooms, you know that they're full of people and they bring one person up after another after another and almost all of these had no one to sit with them or maybe they had their mother that would sit by their side when they went. And when, uh, when this friend stood up and the judge said, would you stand and he stood up, about a dozen or so of us from the church all stood up and immediately everyone looked around and um, and we we stood up not because he was innocent we stood up because we wanted him in that moment to know that we loved him and that we were with him and he was our brother and so as we stood um, he he went through his sentencing and um, he recently sent a letter back and I just want to read a segment out of this letter because I think uh, I think it speaks to what Paul's saying here um, my friend here said, prison is a truly evil place and I saw that the hope I have will be happy, I will be happy to live, leave. My personal journey has been up and down. Sometimes I fall back into my old ways as far as fighting and my pride, but I have stayed true to my faith. Faith, you guys helped grow and for that I'm forever grateful. I will, I, I will have been in here, uh, let's see, I will be in here another year and a half and that, that I solely attribute to the help I received from you all at Redemption and alcohol, uh, NAA, Alcoholics Anonymous. You helped me, you helped me make it through the hard times emotionally while, while I was out on bond and gave me a place to feel welcomed. In the end, it softened the DA's heart and got years off my sentence. Thank you for keeping me in your thoughts and prayers. I have been able to get back here at Holdenville uh, by helping youngsters get into GE classes and try to keep them positive. I discourage them from getting deeper into gangs, which is something I wish I would not have done. But I can't help, but I can talk to people that I wouldn't have been able to without my past status and gang life. In the end, it's a, it's a daily journey. Christ is victory and no matter what, I hold on to it. My life verse is Ephesians 4.28. Let him who stole steal no longer, rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to those who have need. In the end, the word has sustained me through it all. The ups and downs of self-sabotage and uh, the, the truth of God's word have made it all bearable. My cellmate, my neighbor, and I do a prayer meeting and a devotional um, twice every day, so that's nice. In the end, I'm blessed and almost home. Thank you and your whole church family for standing behind me and my family before my time here. And I know you will be there for me after. Friends, that's, that's what church is supposed to be, right? Do you catch the image and the picture of what that is? A, a man who understands his brokenness. A man who, uh, who, who was exposed in a way most of us never are when his worst moment was recorded and written down and called out but we're all sinners in need of grace. And grace is experiencing love of God in the midst of our brokenness. And through that, that's what the church is supposed to do. It's a group of people that say, I'm, all, I'm in the same boat. Because you know what? I, I, I can no more save myself than my friend could save himself. Each of us is in the same boat and we each get to celebrate the grace of Christ. And because of that, we wanna share God's grace with others. 
That, that's ultimately what the church is all about. It's God's people gathered for a purpose to experience grace and to share grace with others. And do you see that when that's true, how beautiful the church can be? That's, that's, what, that's what I want our church, for our church. That's what I want for my life. And we desperately need to know that friendship exists beyond our performance, uh, beyond our ability to appear good. And Paul is writing from prison. He says, I yearn for you all. I want to be with you. God is my witness how much I long for you because I have you in my heart. My heart's knit to you because uh, with, when I was in your presence, we experienced God's grace together. And then you helped me share God's grace with other people and be a part of the gospel ministry. And so he says, I long for you. Verse 8, um, he goes on and he says, For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, both in my imprisonment and in, my, in the defense and confirmment of the gospel. So he, he says, in, in two different circumstances, you stood by me. You stood by me when I was able to, when I looked like a powerful preacher and was able to get up and testify and defend the gospel and confirm God's goodness to the world. You stood by me then and you stood by me when I was of no use to you at all stuck in prison. But your love didn't, didn't wane. Man, you stood by me and through thick and thin. Uh, one guy said, said it this way, he said, the Philippians stood with Paul through thick and thin, both when he had the appearance of a powerful teacher and when he did not. They were supporting him even when he didn't appear to be producing anything. Don't you want to be loved like that? That, that it's not just when you show up and do all the right things that people, that, that people care about you, but on the days where you don't want to do it, on the days when you can't, on the days when your hands are tied and you have nothing to offer that, that love doesn't, uh, doesn't run away, but the love stays true and stays faithful. That's what Paul experienced, which is why he had such joy. In verse 7, he says, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now, at first glance, this sounds like a pretty emotional verse, right? I have you in my heart. I, I, I long for you. I yearn for you. And so you see this kind of emotion that's there. But, and it is an emotional statement, but that's not all it is. You notice that he also uh, talks about what it is that unites them. And notice the grounds of that emotion. It's grounded in a theology. And so this is actually a theological statement that Paul makes. He says, you are all partakers of grace with me, meaning we're united by Christ, that every one of us experiences Christ. And so it doesn't matter who you are, if you're in the body of Christ, we're connected because we're all sharing in God's grace together. And that's what brings us together through the gospel. And so he's saying this not to just a few, He's not saying this to the elite in the room. He's not saying this merely to the church leaders. He's saying this to everyone in the church. We're all in the same, we're all in the same place. The, 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 the ground's level at the foot of the cross. None of us are superior, but we're all united and brought together by his grace. And somehow that ought to cause us joy and friendship. Friends, what we need and, and what Paul, I think, is pointing at is we don't just need gospel truth and gospel preaching. We need gospel culture. We need, we need God's grace to, uh, to, to really guide the way in which we operate and, and we treat one another and we engage with one another. Uh, another one, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross said this, we think sometimes we're only drawn to the good, but we're actually drawn to the authentic. We like people who are real more than those who hide their true selves under layers of artificial niceties. 
You find that to be true? That you don't want someone who just has the appearance of looking like they have it all together, but what actually, that actually makes you closer to someone is when they go, man, I don't, I don't always have it all together. And there's something about that authenticity and that realness, the, the, the peeling away the layers that draws us to them. Friends, what if, what if church was a place that we could experience friendship without pressure? Where you didn't walk in the door feeling like you needed to pretend that you're something you're not. If you didn't come through and, and feel this pressure of people trying to fix you or change you or make you someone that, that they wanted you to be. And what if grace was the thing we all needed so we offered it to one another without demands? Would that, would that change the feeling of rest in your soul? Would that change the way that you just kind of feel that pressure, that tension in your back? I'm one of those guys that tends to carry my stress. There's like two knots right in the back to the either side of my spine between my spine and my shoulder blade. And there's, there, there's a stress. That, and when I get stressed, these knots just kind of well up there and I can feel them. And they just kind of feel this tense. And I, I just, I, when I look at this, I think, I mean, if our world was like that, I just think those would all fade away that we would experience joy and freedom in a unique and different way. Now, here's the reality. We're gonna see in a minute that God does care about what we think. God does care about how we live. God does care about all those things. But, but, and so it's not that we don't wanna see people transformed by God's grace. It's just that the, the, the context in which people are transformed is most likely to be a, a culture of grace. That when we live in a house of grace, that's what gives people the freedom to change. And that's what you see biblically, but it's also what our experience says. And so ultimately, it's not my job to change someone, it's God's job. And so to create a, an environment of love and grace where truth can be brought to them and over time they begin to experience grace is where we'll see change that happens. But what Paul's saying is there's, there's no one in this room so sinful and broken that you cannot be saved by the grace of God. There's also no one in this room so beautiful and together that you don't need the grace of God. It's the thing that, that unites us. And so Paul uh, feels strongly about them. In verse eight, he says, God is my witness. This is an oath. And he calls God to bear witness to them how much he has affection for them. And then he goes on to pray for them. And he's gonna build this prayer and it's gonna kind of build to a crescendo in verses nine through 11. What he says is, uh, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, that your love's gonna overflow more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So he starts off, he's talking about love and it's easy for us because we live in a world that, that loves to talk about that word. We, we love to speak about love. We love to think about love. We love to, to claim that we have love. Uh, we, we, uh, we, when you think about this, though, love ultimately gets its definition from the character of God. God is love. And so when we think about what love truly is, we have to start with who God is. God's character tells us what love really looks like. And it's easy to overlook that as we run through this. But love, first of all, points us to God. Do you notice what Paul says? He starts off and he's praying that your love may abound more and more. And so he's gonna kind of build this prayer to a crescendo. He's gonna give us three things that he wants to pray for related to this over, overflowing of love. First, he says, so that they would approve of the things that are excellent. 
Another way to translate that would be, I want you, your love to overflow to the point that you understand what is truly important in life. What are the things that matter most in life that you're going to be able to discern and see those? Secondly, he says, in order that they may be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness. When he talks about purity and blamelessness, uh, purity is the, that you be wholehearted. That you would not be, have, mixed, uh, have a mixed heart. That you wouldn't be divided amongst anything, but your heart would completely belong to God. And blameless is, uh, it really has to do with the fact that you're not going to cause someone else to stumble or uh, give, them, give them a difficulty. Verse, uh, and then the third thing is to the glory and praise of God. So I'm going to pray that you'll be able to approve of the things which really matter in life. I'm going to pray that your heart is going to wholly belong to God. And I'm going to pray that, that your life would overflow to the glory and praise of God. Yeah. You know, in some ways, that's actually encouraging. Uh, because I think when we read that, we tend to get intimidated, right? How many of you would say, man, my life is characterized by being so filled with the fruit of righteousness that God's going to be glorified and honored in me all the time? Any of you feel that way? Most of us kind of go, ah, I'm a little uncomfortable stepping into that territory. So I want you to be encouraged. You notice what Paul says? He, he doesn't pray that, that God thank you that they're all perfect and righteous. He says pray that their love would begin to increase, that it become more and more so that they would progressively look more like this. Because he's, there's an admission underneath that that says we don't have it all together. We need more love. Any of you find on certain days it's hard to love? Like even the people you love the most in the world, it's sometimes hard to love them. But we need, an in, we need to abound in love more and more. Uh, verse 9, though, Paul connects the idea of love with knowledge. Uh, one guy says, Paul does not, uh, Moises Silva says, Paul does not view love as mindless. Quite the contrary, knowledge is the way of love. So he calls us to have a knowledge that cultivates love in our hearts. And so uh, these are not separated or distinct, even though in our world, sometimes we talk about that. We, uh, we love in our world to say things like, love is love. And what Paul says is, no, it's not. Like there are some loves that are better than others. And so I want you to love in a way that's filled with knowledge that causes you to, to appreciate and approve and affirm the things that are best in life, the things that matter most, that which is excellent, he says. See, our freedom, uh, love does not give us freedom to do whatever we want when we want. True freedom is the capacity to see and trust that Jesus' way is going to lead to our ultimate goodness and flourishing. That Christ has a better way than the way of the world. And so he calls us to that and he prays that we're, our love is going to overflow with discernment to affirm those things which are good. Verse 10, he says, so that you may approve what is excellent, learn to value, meaning learn to value the things that are best. Real love shapes our perception. Real love uh, molds our desires. It helps us love uh, what is good to affirm what is morally beautiful. And so he prays that we would have moral discernment and that ultimately our lives would honor God. Do you know that you can honor God with your life? That, that's what Paul prays for you. So let me, let me go backwards now just a little bit. Some of you may have noticed I skipped verse six. Verse six may be the most 
most well-known verse in this entire passage. And so I want us to make a connection. There's a connection that Paul makes with verse 6 and verses 10 and 11 that I think is important. And this is encouraging for us because sometimes I can get discouraged when I look at this and think, man, I just know I don't always live up to the expectations that I see here. I know that my life isn't always characterized by perfect righteousness, that I'm not always pure and blameless, that my love isn't always abounding, but sometimes I want to be selfish. And so in the midst of my, my own weakness, where do I turn for encouragement? Where do I look for help? You notice in verse 10, uh, in verse 11, what does he say? That we're filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. See, ultimately, it's not something that just happens through self-effort. It's not just my own working my way up and doing all the right things. It actually has to come through God's strength. It comes through Jesus Christ. And, uh, and the Bible calls this sanctification. That we don't have it all together, but we're saved by grace. And as we live within a community of grace called the church, and we put our, fix our eyes on Jesus, we forget what lies behind, and we strain ahead, Paul's going to say in Philippians 3, we press on to the goal of knowing Jesus. And in that, Jesus works in us to bring about change. And he transforms us and. And in that, he causes our love to abound. And that love isn't just a mindless love, but that love works through our minds so that we begin to say, and I see what's right and what's wrong. I, I love the things that are excellent and good and beautiful. And, and I desire the things that honor and glorify God. And so that's the process that we sometimes speak of as, as sanctification. So friends, question. How do you find and develop lasting, healthy, joyful, thankful friendships with God's people? Answer, through Jesus Christ. Christ is the one that brings us together and it's important for us to build our friendships on the grace of Christ and the gospel, participation in his gospel. That ultimately that's the thing that ought to mold us. And so as we look at this, what Paul is saying in Philippians is, I look back from the very first day that God started this work in our church until now. And so in the past and now is the present, right? So in the past and in the present, the thing that has brought us together has been the, the fact that we're participating in God's grace and we're partak or partakers with God's grace and we're participating in his mission as partners. And so those are the things that got us to this point. But he says that's also going to be the thing that delivers you to the future. In verse 6, he says, And I am sure of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, this is God's deal. What, what you're experiencing when you experience your salvation, that's, that's God's work. And you see in, in Philippians 1.6, the initiating grace of God, that he began a good work in you. And, and God, doesn't, God doesn't fail to, for, to, to finish the things he begins. God's never started a project and gone, ah, I'm tired, I think I'm going to peace out on this one. That's just not what God does. When God sets his mind and his heart at something, he's going to finish it. And so Paul says, look, I see God's grace in you, and I see how he's worked in you from the very beginning, in the past, up till the present. And so now he's currently at work in you, and I'm seeing that. But you need to know, friends, that he's also going to work all the way to your future. So he who began a good work and is at work in you now is going to complete that work. He's going to finish it. He's going to carry you through to the finish line. 
And so right now, this feeling you have of, I know I'm already called to be this, but I don't always make it. He says, but one day you'll be filled with the fruit of righteousness. You're not yet there, but that's where you're headed. And you say, man, sometimes I sin. And he says, I know it. And there's grace for that. But one day you'll, be, you'll no longer be sinful. One day you'll look like Jesus. And you say, man, sometimes the darkness of my, my soul doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't reflect Christ well. And he says, but one day you're going to shine with light like Christ. And you're going to be with him. And so the people of God always have this future orientation that we're looking forward to, what God's going to do. And, and so what you see with Paul is this gospel confidence that just says, I know what God started in us, I know what he's doing in us, and I know where he's taking with us, so I can have joy in any circumstances. And you all are my people because we're together partakers of his grace, and we're together engaged in sharing that grace in the gospel mission of the church. And do you, does that enrich your idea of what church is supposed to be? Does it give you a picture of what God's desire for us is? Friends, do you think our world needs a taste of joyful, grace-based, kingdom-compelled, future-oriented life in Christ? And I think they do. Our world's asking us over and over, do you love me? Are you for real? Does this stuff you talk about work? And church is what God has sent into the world to show them that it's true. So friends, they will know us by our love. So let's love. Let's give a lot of grace. Let's encourage one another. Um, you don't have to come in and just start telling us all about your sin, but let's just acknowledge we all got it. And so when we walk in here, we can walk in with humility, but we also walk in with joy um, because we're, we're those who share in God's grace. And we get to share it with one another and share it with the world. Let me pray for us. Father, I do pray that we'd be a people of grace, that we would rejoice in your goodness, that we would overflow more and more with love, love that values that which is truly meaningful in our world, love that is wholeheartedly devoted to you, love that, that brings you honor in the way in which we live. Father, would you make us a people of grace? Father, we pray it in Christ's name. We're thankful for him. Amen.